Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 23rd, 2019, and this is episode 2476 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, we are continuing a series uh, this week on the Just Jack shows, and that is part three of Half Acre Homesteading. Uh, when I went into this topic, I thought, well, I'll, you know, kind of make it easy and simple, and it'll be short and sweet, and it'll be a good show or two, not three or four or five or six or whatever this is going to be. And I started to realize that when we start talking about true homesteading, from the standpoint of what can we do to make our homes productive versus a money sink? that this was going to get complicated, and not really so much complicated, more accurately long. And that's a good thing. And I want you to think about why it's a good thing. If I could explain homesteading on a half acre or less of land in one episode of the Survival Podcast in total, to where you're like, yeah, I get it, and here's all the stuff I can do now, what it would mean is there's not that much you can do. <laughs> right? I mean, it would be like, I can put a garden in, and that's it. See, there's so much more that we can do. Uh, our our homes can become, uh, honestly, it's almost like a money printing machine when it comes to food, it just, in, just in food itself. Where if you look at something like, let's say, a organic butternut squash, just be something that's pretty easy to grow. One of the more easy uh, winter squashes produced, stores really well, doesn't really require refrigeration or what have you. Uh, in the south, like where I'm at, you know, we've learned about things like Seminole Pumpkin from uh, Rob Greenfield. Maybe it's that instead. But either way, you know, you're looking at something that a, a normal-sized one in a store is like 6 bucks. So if you grow 10 of those, that's $60. If you grow 20 of them, that's $120 in food. That's, that's almost free. It's not completely free, but it's it's almost free. And then how many things can we stack onto that? But then there's so many things additionally that we can provide for ourselves, some through growing and some through uh, management and some through just understanding and taking things that are already there and, and rearranging them, such as income. We're not going to talk about income today, really, but you know we are going to have a, a part of this series where we talk about how your homestead can become a source of income, multiple ways to do that. Uh, but another thing that we can produce for ourselves in addition to food, is things to flavor our food and medicines in the form of herbs. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And even with a, a full episode on herbs, I'm only going to cover a small fraction of the herbs uh, that I would recommend people consider growing or foraging. And just a, a, a light overview of what they can do for us. And this is something that we lost in America. And it's why I wanted to do this series. And Again, I, I say this every episode. I'm calling it Half Acre Homesteading because it sounds cool. It's buzzworthy, right? It's It sounds like a, a marketing tagline, and it kind of is. Uh, what I mean is small property homesteading. And either that is you have a small property you're homesteading on, or you have a large property and you are intensively managing a small portion of it for the majority of your needs. And this is how the entire concept of the suburbs was built in America. 
The original suburbs were not designed to be a place that people like move to and send their kids to school, and then you know both mom and dad worked uh, all day long, and they put two cars in the in the driveway. They were only there at night because everybody was gone all day, and kind of the sterile version of the suburbs that we have today. That's not how the suburbs were designed. In fact, it was actually difficult to get a lot of Americans who, as rural jobs declined and agricultural jobs declined, uh, as the landscape of what agriculture was in America changed, and you know, one guy uh, with some machinery could now handle a farm that before would have been 20 or 30 or 40 farms. And there just wasn't the opportunity to stay in these areas, and people started looking to the cities and, and, and towns for jobs. People didn't want to leave. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. How many of us don't, or, you know, that, that are in the suburbs want to get out there, way out there in the country, right? Uh, way out here in the, the Josh Thompson song, right? How, how many people have that dream? How many people live more in the city at least want to get out to kind of the outer suburbs? Like, we have this intrinsic component in ourselves as human beings that we want to coexist with nature. We want to walk on the grass in bare feet. We want to touch the soil. It's who we are. We can try to hide it. We can try to manipulate it. We can try to change it, but it's who we are. So the early designers of the suburbs designed them to be like mini farmsteads. So that you could have your, you know, few chickens. And so you could have your garden. And so that neighborhoods would be built to where people could exchange and, and commune. And that's how the suburbs were originally designed. And part of what held that together was moms staying home, by and large. By and large, especially before World War II. Women did not enter the workplace, and that didn't even really begin heavily, because they went to work for World War II, and most of them went back home. But where you know moms worked full time for the you know for the majority of their lives, that was really the late '60s, early '70s when that really started to be a thing. And by the '80s, it was a thing. And when that happened, and kids like me in my age group, we raised ourselves. Gen X was known as the latchkey generation, latchkey kids. You go home from school, you go home, you lock the door, right? And what you really did was run out and play, but you said you were home. You waited for somebody to call, and then you answer the phone. Say, yeah, I'm home. Because there was no cell phones or tracking or any of that crap. So as soon as you got the call, you ditched. You went out, and you made sure you were home by the time you know whoever got home was home. And losing that maternal component in the suburbs took away a lot of the community aspect of it. And with everybody working, people had less time to grow gardens and things like that. And the whole thing kind of became what it is today. And now instead of the suburbs as we had them, when they were first really built out and increased in size, now what we have is more of a McMansion-style communities. And even in the places where they're not really McMansions, they're smaller homes, you know, what's left of them. They're still, it's like trying to be that McMansion community without it being a McMansion community, which basically means sterile homes that all look perfectly and, and nobody comes outside. There's so much of that in America, and we've lost this concept of homesteading. And so I went into this to kind of bring that back. And today, again, we're going to talk about herbs and all the different wonderful things that herbs do and how they fit into your homestead. All right, and with that, before we uh, get into herbs and all the things they can do in your life, let me uh, tell you about the YouTube channel of the week. I try to feature one YouTube channel every week that I think you can learn a lot from or really enjoy. Today I decided to uh, give you a channel that really will fit in 
with what we're talking about today. Mountain Rose Herbs. This is a company you've heard me talk about. Um, they are one of my go-to sources for raw herbs, especially for some of the more difficult to obtain in large quantity stuff that I use in my mead making and things like that. Uh, specifically, the stuff that I need to make three flowers blend. Uh, elderflower is hard to find in significant quantities, for instance. So um, it is something that you know I get at Mountain Rose Herbs. But what you may not have known about Mountain Rose Herbs, they're not just a company that sells a bunch of herbs. They're real herbalists. And they have a great YouTube channel called Mountain Rose Herbs. And you really want to check that channel out. A lot of the things we're going to talk about today, uh, they have videos on how to make tinctures and how to make uh, the salves and all that great stuff and about individual herbs. Just awesome. So check it out again. The YouTube channel is called Mountain Rose Herbs. There is a link in today's show notes. Next up, uh, for episode 2500, coming up very, very soon, 2,500 times we have done this show together, and 2,500 is a milestone, as far as I'm concerned, in the show's history. And I want you to be a part of it. You can do that by calling the jerk line at 877-644-1345. Call into the jerk line. Tell us how Survival Podcast has made your life just a little bit better. Be part of episode 2,500. It'll be one for the history books and one that you're going to want to be part of, and you'll be proud to be part of if you do. Again, the jerk line is 877-644-1345. I said in the past many times you would never call me a jerk because you, for instance, paid off all your money and now you have or paid off all your debt. Now you have all this stupid money you don't know what to do with, and then people started doing it. So we're going to do it for episode 2,500 in a real way. Call the jerk line. Tell me why I'm a jerk and how your life's better for what TSP has brought into it. Um, so with that, let's talk about herbs and what they can do for us on the homestead. Um, I'm probably missing some stuff here. But I have seven key things, eight key things that herbs do for us. And number one, and the one that most people think of, is they flavor our food and our ferments. And when I say ferments, I mean, you know, we might use herbs like, let's say, caraway seeds, uh, which is an her a herbal seed. Uh, that we, we might use those when we make um, uh, sauerkraut. And uh, also it's Bavarian sauerkraut simply because we have uh, gone out of our way and we have added this one little extra ingredient. So it could be that kind of a ferment. Uh, garlic goes in a lot of uh, lacto-fermentation and things like that. Uh, but I also mean... The ones we imbibe upon. You know, I mentioned one of my meads. It's called Three Flowers Blend. It's made with three different herbal blossoms. And it's really not what you would expect. It's not the kind of floral, um, you know, like something like a rose, which would be another type of thing, like a rose mead. It's a totally different um, kind of a, a, a balanced bitterness. And it has some really cool effects, I'll just say, beyond what the alcohol normally would by itself, using completely legal herbs. So we, we can use these herbs for culinary uses and for flavoring of fermentations, including beverages on which we imbibe. As food themselves, one of the herbs today we'll talk about a little bit is sorrel. Sorrel is a great herb as a pot herb, meaning something that we eat calendula while it has medicinal uses. The, uh, the green part specifically of the calendula plant is a really great pot herb. Uh, plantain can be eaten. Despite what the government says, uh, small amounts of uh, comfrey can be consumed and is perfectly healthy. We'll even talk about that a little bit today. So herbs can be like the, what we normally think of, like you know, sprinkling a little parsley on our potato or something. They also can be a food in of themselves. Next, if they can be food for us, they can be food for animals. So some herbs are really great fodder herbs that would be fed to animals. 
Uh, we mentioned, I mentioned comfrey. Comfrey is a great fodder herb. It's funny that animals can consume it and it doesn't kill them. Um, comfrey is something that when we talk about it, we'll mention that you can consume too much. It was really hard. Um, but when I read the work of Lawrence D. Wells, who's probably done more work on comfrey than anybody else in the history of the world, uh, he, he did an experiment with feeding hogs comfrey. And if they got over a certain proportion of their diet from comfrey alone, then they actually could die from it. So, yeah, sure, that can happen, but the smaller amounts of it are actually quite beneficial. So there's, there's different herbs that we can grow as fodder for livestock. Plantain's another herb I think people should grow. Um, there are specific types of plantain that are grown specifically as livestock fodder, like tonic plantain, which is a narrow-leaf plantain. So we can use herbs to help feed and to tonify our animals. Uh, also, making fertilizer, back to comfrey again. But comfrey and many other weeds can be used to make teas that are rich in minerals and micronutrients that can be used to fertilize our plants. We can make what's called green manure tea from, from comfrey, which is an incredible fertilizer. Um, Mexican sunflower, uh, can, can, we just learned about that from a guest, can be used to make full-on fertilizer. So we can, we can actually grow our own fertilizer through the use of herbs. Next is another one that people think of a lot when they hear of, of herbs is medicine. Uh, I, I have always been a huge believer in herbal medicine because it's scientifically valid. And one of the things that people tend to not realize is a lot of the herbs that we use culinarily actually have significant medicinal values. Let me give you, like, here's like four of the most common herbs that people use in the kitchen. Basil, parsley, thyme, and rosemary. All of those have antibacterial and antimicrobial components to them. All of them. Did you know that? I mean, so herbs have this ability to be medicine for us, whether it's for something acute or whether it is long-term small amounts that are therapeutic to the overall health of the body. Next, herbal teas. So we're kind of, some of these kind of cross over because an herbal tea very much can be a medicine. Fresh parsley and fresh thyme and fresh basil in some sort of a salad can be medicinal, but we're doing that for the flavor that they provide there. And so teas, we're going to drink teas not only for medicinal value, but because they're pleasing to consume. So something like mint and bee balm is a great tea. You have that, that light kind of cooling effect of the mint, and then you have this kind of velvety texture that comes from the bee balm, which is why they call it wild bergamot. So bergamot's actually an orange, and there's an oil that comes from this orange. It's an Italian uh, variety of orange. And that's what they actually spray on Earl Grey tea. And so that when if you've ever had a cup of Earl Grey tea, which is you know regular uh, tea that we think of the, you know, from the Far East or whatever, but it's sprayed with this orange oil. And it gives it this velvety-like, soft thing that's very hard to explain well it's for a totally different reason but bee balm does that same thing so we can make really great tasting teas we can use things like lemongrass and get lemon flavor into a tea or ginger or cinnamon and get spice into a tea so we can actually replace some of our beverages with herbal teas in many instances that we can grow in our own backyard Uh, next is we can actually use some herbs in some ways to boost protein. This really isn't that important unless you ever need to know that you can do this. Um, and there's, there's different ways that we can do it. And what I mean by usually it's not that important, most of the people in this audience are not vegetarians or vegans. 
And if you are eating any amount of animal protein, even things like eggs and, and milk and cheese, you're probably not going to ever have a protein deficiency. When you move into the world of veganism, there are a lot of instances where people are protein deficient, and I don't mean to where they're going to die or go blind or something, but they don't realize that it, it does cause health problems. You can be mad at me, but it's just the way that it is. And it's because while vegetables do contain protein and, and different grains contain protein, there are certain amino, amino acids, which are the base proteins, that are essential. And what it means, when, when, when something is called an essential amino acid, that means it's something that your body needs, uh, essential, but it's also something your body cannot synthesize from something else. So there are some amino acids that even if we do not get them in our diet, we can take other amino acids and kind of reconfigure them and make them for ourselves. Essential amino acid means you have to get it in your diet. And without all of them, you can even have enough grams of raw protein and still be deficient. And you can do it on a purely vegetative diet. It absolutely can be done, but it requires the right combinations of foods. When it comes to herbs, there are herbs that have very near full protein profiles, if not in the herb themselves, uh, in the seeds. These would be things like quinoa and amaranth and hemp. Uh, for instance, now it's not legal to grow hemp in your backyard yet, um, but maybe someday it will be. Well, you can grow quinoa, you can grow amaranth. Um, but there are other herbs in the similar family, goosefoot family, for instance, such as lamb's quarters. Um, lamb's quarter is in the same family quinoa is, and they, they bo both the seed of both have um, full spectrum proteins, meaning they have all the protein you need. So if you know that, you could take something like the grain of amaranth. And I'm sorry, or you could use, uh, I'm sorry, the grain of lamb's quarter, which is the seeds. And you would have to spend a long time, a long time before you would get enough lamb's quarter seed to make a flour. But it doesn't take that long to fill up, you know, half of a, of a, of a one gallon Ziploc bag, a half gallon of that. And, you know, a handful of that mixed into a bread, for instance, is a big boost in protein. And it actually tastes pretty good. So that's one example. Plantain seed is another one. Not, it's not full spectrum, but it does offer a lot of additional protein. And plantain seed can also be used the same way. And that can go into soups and things like that. So that's one way. Now, the other plant that I mentioned there was amaranth. And amaranth is something like 30-something percent protein in the leaf, in the vegetative component of it. So while it's not, it does not have all the amino acids it has, the, the essentials, it has some of them. So we can get a protein boost from herbs if we understand what we're looking for. Uh, and last but not least uh, is to attract beneficial insects and repel pests. Uh, garlic should be interplanted like crazy in your gardens because it has it's such an uh, anti-pest property to it. But a lot of the herbs that we grow, especially if we allow them to flower, such as parsley. Parsley is a biannual. That means it grows as a vegetative only one year, and then in the second season, they'll send up a big old stalk, and it'll get these big flat, um, like a pancake. It almost looks like a miniature version of elderberry uh, blossoms, and it will just be teeming with pollinators when it flowers. And so the smells of herbs plus the flowers of herbs bring in pollinators, and they also bring in predators. So we want to be planting herbs on our property just for the good bugs that they bring in. In addition, there are many herbs that are repellent to pests, or if they're not directly repellent, what they do is they 
they cover up the smells of the things that they're specifically looking for. Most pests that we deal with are very specific to one to six plants that they actually want. So we look at something like a squash bug. Squash bugs will pretty much hammer all your cucubits. So melons, etc. But they really like squash, don't they? But they'll also hit gourds. Um, and they will even, if there's not enough of that stuff around, will feed a little bit on bean leaves as well, anything kind of like that. So, but there's only that small, like, they don't really spend a lot of time, you know, eating radishes, right, or, or peas. Or I've never really seen squash bugs do much to a tomato plant. I've seen them when a tomato gets really ripe kind of drink the tomato juice, but I've never really seen them bother a tomato plant. So there's only a small group of plants, and that's what they're looking for, and they're either going to use visual cues or sensory cues. So they're either going to smell the plant or they're going to use color. Like uh, squash bugs are really attracted to yellow. That's so why we can basically take really bright yellow tape, bake it two-sided, and then stick it on a stick and stick it in our garden and we'll catch squash bugs like crazy. They just go to the yellow. Well, when we take something like an herb, our insect pests will then have a harder time smelling what they're looking for and they become confused. Uh, or they, they may not, they may be able to find it, but they're not quite all there, if you get what I'm saying. There's a funny smell and they're not paying attention. And a pest generally has a predator. Now, squash bugs are a bad example. I don't know anything that kills squash bugs, which is why they're so maddening. But most of our pest insects have other insects that naturally predate upon them. And while they're confused or lost or not quite paying as much attention, that's when the predator gets you. When you, you're not quite on the ball. And herbs do a lot to help with that. Or they do direct repellent. Uh, a lot of our alliums, onion and garlic, is very good at repelling pests. And this doesn't always have to be complicated. This can be as simple as this. You go to the store and you buy some green onions. Okay, leave the tips of your green onions. Replant them in your garden. That alone can make a huge difference. Where do you get garlic seed? Go to the store and buy garlic. Buy good quality garlic. And use all those nice big cloves in your cooking. And when you get down to those little fiddly ones that are just not worth opening up, just plant them and they'll grow. See, it's, it's so simple if we start thinking that way. So those are kind of my big things that, that herbs can do for us. They flavor our foods and ferments. They are foods themselves. They provide fodder for livestock. They help make fertilizer. They provide medicine. They provide tea. They boost protein. And they attract beneficial insects, repel pests. Um, and, and, and attract predators as well. So when someone says, well, why would we want to grow herbs? My response is, why wouldn't you? Like, this is so fundamental to everything we'd like to accomplish as homesteaders uh, or even just people in general. I mean, I look at it this way. Like, even if you're not going to be a gardener, herbs belong around your property. There's so many ways, and we'll talk about how to do that. Um, and the good news is they're very easy to grow. It's very easy to grow herbs. It doesn't require a great deal of skill. You don't have to have a super green thumb. Realize that most of our herbs are basically weeds. They grow in wild formats. In fact, very few of our herbs have really been improved from their wild form. Some have, and some have a lot of different variations, but most of them either are in their wild form, even if there's different varieties. They're just different varieties of different wild forms. Or they're only maybe separated by one level from their wild forms. Where if we look at something like a tomato, do you know that in wild, true wild tomatoes, before man ever touched them, there was no red, there were yellow. There was yellow and there was orange. Red is something that like most tomatoes are red. We made them that way. There's nothing 
There's nothing in the wild akin to like a Parks Whopper, you know, beefsteak tomato or something like that, or a Cherokee Purple or whatever. They, these are all things that man made. And when we take a natural plant and we use selective breeding to change what it is, a lot of good comes from that, but that plant's natural adaptability is lost to a large degree, and they become dependent on us. They need us to do certain things to make sure that they can get what they want. But how much work do you have to do to grow a dandelion? Right? One kid blows a dandelion in the wrong yard, and the guy that never, you know, was true green chemlon without the pesticides, the guy's just had his place manicured, you know, 100%, and all of a sudden there's dandelions everywhere because one kid blew a flower. Well, most of our herbs are kind of like that. They're pretty hardy. If we just get, see, now this is the part where people get confused about easy versus foolproof. So here's what I mean by that. If you said, I, I want to grow like a really, some really tough herbs that give me a lot of bang for the buck, um, I would tell you the road that, you know, like the, the, the trinity of Mediterranean herbs rosemary, thyme, and oregano. I mean, they are tough plants. You want to kill them? Water them too much. You'll kill them. Give them too much water, they'll die. They're Mediterranean herbs. They, they, they grow best in warm, dry environments. That's, that's what the Mediterranean climate is. That doesn't mean desert. There has to be some moisture. They're not cacti. But you take this, this, these three that are really, really tough, and you give them too much water, they'll die. So... Then you want, well, but they're wild and they grow all by themselves. Yeah, but they find their little niches. And that's the beauty of growing herbs. We can create niches or we can allow them to find their own niches. We can get, you know, really cheap seed, large amounts of it, and all the different herbs that we want to grow. And we can just broadcast it. And it'll figure out where it grows. Or we can grow it a little bit more controlled. So I want to talk about kind of my four big ways to intentionally grow herbs in addition to kind of the broadcast and let it do what it wants to method. Number one is dedicated herb gardens. And I think dedicated herb gardens have a real place. And I think the dedicated herb garden belongs in like, you know, what we say in permaculture is you have zone zero is inside your house and zone one is right when you walk outside your house. If we were to cut zone one up into you know, like, like layers of zone one, like point one, point two, point three, like that. Your kitchen herb garden would belong in like point one to point two, like right outside your kitchen. That's where the parsley and the oregano and the basil and all of this stuff should be. You know, right out the front door, right out the back door, right out the side door, something like that, so that when you're cooking and you're like, yeah, you know what, this would really be good with a little bit of fresh basil. It's so convenient that you just go get it. Or if it's like a colder time of the year, it's kind of cold out, and you'd have to put all your coat on and stuff and go truck it out to the garden, you know. But you're you're cooking potatoes, and you're like, man, parsley and potatoes, yeah. And you just reach out, and yank a piece off, come in, chop it up. Like that's where those dedicated herb gardens really belong, very very close to your dwelling. And again, finding the niches, and they can be dispersed too. So a dedicated herb garden might be, well, here's my here's this side of my home that really has like the western wall effect. Your western wall in the suburbs, unless it's totally shaded by neighbors or other stuff, the western wall that gets hit with the sun, or the southwestern corner that gets hit with the sun, that's Mediterranean climate. In, in Pennsylvania, that's a Mediterranean climate for six months out of the year. 
It's drier than the rest of the property. It's got a lot of residual heat. Just like Mediterranean climates usually have a lot of gravel in the soil. They reflect a lot of heat. So it's a Mediterranean climate. But your, your eastern wall that gets morning sun and nice and warm and stays damper and cooler, that's more of a temperate climate. So an herb that pref, you know, prefers that, like a chickweed, would do well there. Or sorrel, right? So, or dill. All of those would do well there. Kind of your direct south-facing maybe sage. So you can have like dispersed little clumps of herbs and each of those be kind of dedicated herb garden. One way to do this to make it really, really easy because we can move it and we can take certain herbs that are perennial and bring them in in wintertime. Uh, and even if they don't do really great, if we just get them through winter and they have that nice big root system they just blow up in the spring, is to grow in containers. One of my favorite ways to grow herbs. Because we can, if we put herbs the right way in containers and we handle them the right way in containers, they're as beautiful as any flower that you would ever grow. In fact, many herbs are flowers, like lavender, for instance. So container growing of herbs, I think, is a really great way to go. Even if you have dedicated herb gardens, even if you grow containers, I believe that we all should also be growing herbs that are interplanted with our vegetables and our other plants. So that means if we have conventional landscape and we have you know more like flowers and stuff like that, let's put some herbs in there. They're not going to make it look bad. You know, lavender has that beautiful lavender color and it's got those kind of evergreen looking needle-like leaves and it's got this wonderful smell and it attracts insects that are beneficial and all. Why can't that go into your flower garden? Roses are actually an herb we're going to talk about today. Everybody thinks rose is a landscaping plant. Rose interplanted, it just is a, it's a fantastic plant. So interplanting, because interplanting allows for that bringing in of the beneficials, bringing in of the pet predator insects and the pollinators. It also allows for repelling or confusing of our pests. So even if it's just like I said, like onion and garlic interplanting with your vegetables, There should be some level of, of, of interplanting of herbs. I always plant dill everywhere. My climate, dill, my dill is done for the year, right? I should have dried a lot more of it than I did for a, a dried storage of dill because dill weed, I say it's done. It's done for the summer. A lot of my dill went to seed and dropped seed right in the, right in the, the gardens that they're growing in. There will be a second flush of dill in my fall. That's how my climate works. Yours might be differently. But by interplanting, what you'll end up with is you'll have a lot, especially the longer you garden, the more this will be the case, that there will be these spontaneous volunteers of herbs that just show up. My grandmother loved dill. It was one of her favorite herbs because she was big on making pickles. So you want to make dill pickles, you need dill weed. And I remember one day she sent me down to get some dill weed from the garden. And I asked her where it was, and she told me. And I went down and got I was a really little kid. You know, I came back up. I said, well, Grandma, I remember we planted everything. When do you plant the dill? She said, I planted the dill in the 60s. <laughs> and it took me a while to get it. But then I understood that, like, the dill just came back every year on its own. So by doing that interplantation, we also get a lot of volunteers. And then herbs find those niches we talked about that you can do with the broadcast method. And the next thing is as margins and borders. And this maybe is more for the truly dedicated homesteader that really is doing small-scale farming. Maybe even a little bit beyond the half-acre methodology, but where we have rows of garden beds, let's say, and we have a row of tomatoes and a row of cucumbers, and we're doing maybe a little less interplanting. We're doing that more for management and high harvest rates. But instead of just you know 
tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers and eggplants. We're doing, you know, maybe a couple rows and then a row of herbs, just a mixed row of herbs. Maybe we have a, a, a small garden, something in a neighborhood of like a 20th of an acre little square garden, and maybe all the way around it, almost like a fence hedge, we have just this border of just random mixed herbs. That gives us all of that pest, uh, pest, and benef pest propellant, beneficial attract, uh, attracting, plus we can harvest as we need. So those are your four main ways. Now I'm going to talk about, I think I have 20 herbs here, and uh, I'm going to talk about these 20 herbs that you can grow and some of the things that they'll do for you. And, and I know that almost everybody out there is going to have an herb you really love that's not going to be on this list. And if I wanted to like mention every herb that I think is worth your consideration, it would mean, be over 100. And if I was going to actually explain each one of those for two minutes, that's 200 minutes of just herbs. And so I'm not even going to do two minutes on all of these. I'm just going to give you a basic overview of them and understand that if you're like, well, what about? Yes, do that too. Uh, number one, comfrey. Comfrey is the you know one of those herbs I think everybody should grow. It does so much for us. It's medicinal. It's fodder. It's fertilizer. I mean... You don't need it to be any more than that. But when it flowers, it's also awesome as an insect attractor. And one of the coolest things to do with comfrey, you can do this borage too. Um, when it puts those little purple flowers on, they are so cool. They have almost a cucumber-like taste. You can put them in salads. Or like if you want to do something really cool for sort of like certain mixed drinks and all, take you know, like three or four of them and put them into an ice cube, like in an ice cube, old-school ice cube tray, and make ice cubes with comfrey blossoms in them. I want to say something real quick about internal use of comfrey. The United States government in its infinite wisdom and the scientific community has deemed that comfrey is evil and will kill you and blow up your liver. It is, in a word, bullshit. It is bull... I don't know if that's a compound word or two words, depending on how you want to do it, but it is bull-effing shit, okay? Um, the studies that were done that resulted in this were like feeding baby rats... Nine times their body weight in comfrey over eight weeks. So if you're a 180-pound man, to replicate this, you would have to eat, a, you know, um, let's say 200-pound man, right? 2,000 pounds of comfrey. Not no, 2,000, what? 1,800 pounds of comfrey. Almost a ton. While they were being fed this, they were also being injected with comfrey extract. This is just stupid. No one uses comfrey internally this way. And it's maddening to me because even people I really respect, I had a conversation with Doc Bones about this during my vacation in Florida where he and his wife Amy came to be with us, and he was saying, well, comfrey is dangerous. The studies prove it. It's like, you haven't read these studies. You have confirmation bias, and he got all pissy about it. But, I mean, I would tell you this. I guarantee you Bones is a smart man, very one of the smartest people I know from just a straight-up IQ uh, level. If I challenged him to a debate, and he was willing to accept it, on whether or not using comfrey as a whole herb, the way anybody would ever do it, without doing some sort of major extraction and concentration of it, was safe. That was my position. His was that random use of it like that can be dangerous. As he prepared to debate me, by the time we got ready for the debate, he would just concede. He would know he was beat if he actually did the research. It is not what they say it is, and it was used as a way to see doubt and FUD into the entire world of herbalism. And nobody benefits except the pharmaceutical companies in this. 
You can read it for yourself. I have a fairly abbreviated article in today's show notes that explains exactly what was done. If you want to go deeper, I'm going to tell you right now, especially because I always hear from doctors when I talk about this. I dare you. I dare you, I dare you, I dare you to research the methodology and come back to me with a clear, concise case that the use, the occasional use, and I mean weekly use of small amounts of comfrey internally could ever cause any harm to the human body, go for it. Otherwise, screw it. All right? So there I've said that. So comfrey. But I do agree that probably the best use of it medicinally is topically. Because it's where it works so good. Most herbalists don't use comfrey internally anyway because it just works so much better as a topical. As a salve, it works beautifully to uh, deal with wounds, specifically abrasions, shallow cuts, things like that. What you don't put it on, deep cuts or deep puncture wounds. And you don't do it for the same reason you wouldn't suture them yourself. It works so good that it can heal the surface so fast that can trap infection under the skin. So that's actually the biggest risk with coffee. Also, uh, poultices and things like that are very good for sprains, uh, fractures, things like that. Its original folk name is bone knit. Okay? It is awesome. And then on top of this, we have a fodder. Then we have a crop that we can uh, use to attract insects that are beneficial. And we have a place, the number one plant Number one plant in the world for overwintering of spiders in temperate climates like we live in is comfrey. When everything kind of dies back and it's that clump of like dried leaves, like spiders just for some reason love to go in there. So it's it's just, and then we can make fertilizer with it, and then it can it can you know can it's just so much. You should be growing comfrey, and it's so easy to propagate from roots. Uh, next is plantain. Plantain and comfrey together as wound treatment to me is the best thing in the world. There's some other stuff that works really good, lantana, calendula, etc. But comfrey and plantain, um, if, if, that, if it can't be helped with that, you probably need a medicine, a, you know, an over-the-counter or a prescription medicine. You know, you're, you're stepping up to needing something um, like a, um, a, a mild steroid, like a hydrocortisone or something like an antibiotic or something like that. Like, that's how good those two are together. The way I learned about plantain, plantain I was a little kid. And my grandfather had a pretty nasty uh, wound on one of his fingers. And he showed me that he put plantain leaf on there and put a Band-Aid over it. And in a couple days, that wound healed. And I was like, my grandfather's a sorcerer, man. He can heal things. And it's just the power of plantain. Uh, bee stings, uh, insect stings, etc. it's incredibly useful with. But plantain also is a legitimate pot herb, something that we can use uh, as a green for salads, for soups, for stews, all types of stuff, including dehydrated, made into a vegetable powder and used in that form as well. Um, but definitely has that, that medicinal quality going for it as well. And then, again, the seed of plantain is very high in protein. So... When you get those big, long spikes on them, you can collect seed, and you can use them as a protein boost. Uh, really good for, like, if you're a bushcrafter, like, this is the kind of thing, like, you, you carry a bag of this along with you for when you're making something like bannock, which is like a stick bread. And after you wrap your bannock on your stick or put it on a bannock board, you then coat it. It's almost like you were coating a bagel with poppy seeds, uh, with plantain seed, or, again, uh, lamb's quarter seeds, another great one, or even a mix. Really, really great for that. And then the next one, and I tried to put like some, like, like group them a little bit here medicinally, uh, is chickweed. 
Now, chickweed, you probably won't be going out biting seed for. It probably just exists somewhere on your property. When I lived in Pennsylvania, I had chickweed. When I lived over in Arkansas, I had chickweed. When I lived in uh, the Arlington part of Texas, where I used to live before I lived here, I had chickweed. Where I live here now, I had chickweed until I got ducks and they ate every bit of it, and I can barely find it anymore. But chickweed is a pot herb. It tastes good, but it also kind of sort of tastes like corn silk. But, it, I mean, you wouldn't eat corn silk, but you would eat chickweed. But really, it's an incredible medicinal. Um, generally speaking, in my experience, it's a spring herb. It comes up in the spring, and by summer, it's gone. It can't handle the heat. It goes away until next year. Um, but it is one of the best. So plantain and comfrey can be used on insect stings and mosquito bites and ant bites and stuff like that to relieve itching, and they do work. But they're better for healing wounds and preventing infection. Chickweed is dynamite when you're, you get mosquito bites or something like that. You just want the itching to go away, especially a salve made from it specifically. Next is rose. We think of roses as flowers, but they're truly an herb. And we have multiple components of the rose that we can use, the two primary ones being the petals and the hips. The petals are great for teas. We're making rose water. Rose water is actually really good for tightening up the skin. And there's tons of other medicinal uses for roses. Plus, there's culinary uses. Uh, I make a rose mead that's made both with petals and the hips of rose. And it is a just, especially made into a dry mead, it is just beautiful. And I can't see why you couldn't make a rose wine out of just about any good dry wine and end up with, you know, not the Ernest and Julio Gallo crap they call rose wine in a store, but a true wine made from rose instead of a rosé, right? That would just be fantastic. The hips are incredibly high in vitamin C. There's more vitamin C in a rose hip, ounce for ounce, than there's in oranges. It's one of the best sources of vitamin C that we have. Vitamin C, of course, has a, a myriad of, of, of positive things that it does for us. You know, I can't say anything treats or cures an illness or a disease because I'm not a doctor and, you know, bread becomes a drug and they burn it. Did you know that's a real story, by the way, as an aside? There was a guy, I can't remember, it was back in the 70s. I remember I saw a show in the 80s. And they had kind of like a health food thing going on and they were baking this bread and they were using certain grains in it. And they said something about it having a positive effect on health, and they said it a little bit too aggressively. But there was, it was nothing that wasn't true. And the FDA came in and seized all their bread and incinerated it because they said that the minute they made the claim, the bread became an unlicensed drug. There's your government that tells you not to use comfrey. They can go screw. All right? So... Um, I can't say anything like that. But what we do know is vitamin C prevents scurvy, which is a horrible illness and a terrible way to die that almost nobody dies of anymore because vitamin C is so prevalent. Uh, and we do know that there's lots of vitamin C in rose hips, so you can figure that out for yourself. My grandmother used to actually make a type of soup out of rose hips that was actually pretty good. And it was something to do with her Ukrainian heritage and all. And it was probably back from a time when it was harder to get vitamin C. So rose has... A, a, a tremendous number of uses, both as a culinary and a medicinal, and definitely as a border plant. I mean, it's a very, comp, a very popular border plant as it is just for landscaping use. Um, plus, they smell good, and they get guys out of trouble when they're in trouble with their women. So why wouldn't you grow them? Next up, calendula. Calendula is another one of those kind of spans two sides. Really fantastic skin uh, medicinal. Uh, itching, things like that. 
but also just like if you look at a lot of like lotions that, that women use for moisturizing their hands and to keep their skin looking young, a lot of them will have calendula uh, or the active ingredients in calendula, including in, in them. Uh, so they're great for that. But it's also a pot herb. It's a pot herb, and it, it is a good standalone green to use as a food source. Additionally, very, very attractive to beneficial insects and pollinators. And as far as using it medicinally, like on scrapes and stings and stuff like that, uh, ant bites, mosquito bites, that type of thing, or bee stings, it can be as simple as you pull the flower off a calendula plant and you macerate it between your fingers until it gets kind of ooky, gooky, sticky and, and put it on there like a, just a straight poultice like that. And it works very quickly. By the way, so does comfrey. In, in that that type of use as well. So those I wanted to stick with, like kind of more toward the medicinal side, but yet they have these other things. Next up today, though, is if you ask most herbalists if they can only have one herb to work with, what would it be? They would tell you garlic. Garlic is an amazing, amazing plant that does so much for us. And again, I think the easiest way for you to grow garlic is to find a good source of organic garlic for your culinary needs. And then simply take your small, uh, your small cloves and plant them. And there's a lot of ways to do that beyond the norm. With the norm is, you know, we have September is usually when we plant garlic. And we have a bed that's a garlic bed. So we put all of it out in September. And then we'll harvest it late summer and get ready to plant it again. That's the conventional way. And maybe either braid it or trim it and dry it and put it in sacks and hang it down in the cellar. That's how my grandparents did it. And nothing wrong with that. They grew a really wonderful kind of a red hardneck. Couldn't tell you the variety to save my life now. And my grandfather usually grew at least one row of elephant garlic as well. Big, giant, cloves, elephant garlic. And that's that's what we did. I he, They didn't braid to do the braid thing. What they did is they would just cut and leave a certain amount of top and then put it out on a, a grate. And it would just sit on that grate till it dried enough to cure. And then we would put it in old onion sacks and hang it down in the basement. It's one way. Another way is just, like I said, if you're buying garlic, just throw all the little fiddly ones you don't want to jack around with into your garden, into your containers, wherever. Just plant it. Uh, one of the great places to put those, though, if you do aquaponics in an ebb and flow bed, you take a little fiddly clove out of your garlic and stick it in an ebb and flow bed, and in a week you have, like, an 8-inch long garlic green. And you cut that and you use it as a green. It'll grow back, you do it again. It'll grow back, you do it again. It'll do it about four or five times where if you don't stop cutting it, it'll basically expend all of its energy and say, screw you and go away. But that's a pretty good yield off that little fiddly thing you didn't want to mess with in the first place. When we do that, we get the repellent effect of garlic on a lot of pests distributed throughout our garden. Uh, so for a myriad of reasons, again, I think you should be growing garlic. Garlic, again, is a medicinal And to derive the best health benefits from garlic, it should be consumed either very, very mildly cooked, which basically means warm through, or raw. So if you want to get the best out of your garlic in your food, one of the things that you can do is begin to do a little bit of chopped garlic added to your food when you serve it. If you cook with it, sure, it tastes good. And I cook with garlic all the time, but you lose most of the medicinal benefits of it. Next up is mint. And when I say mint, I mean mints with an S. All of them, peppermint, spearmint, sweet mint, you name it, uh, bee balm, lemon balm, everything in the mint family. What should you grow? All of it. It's just, there's so much beautiful, wonderful benefit to mint. It's my favorite base for a tea. Straight up peppermint. Um, there's also, of the peppermints, the one I actually like the best is called chocolate mint. 
and it doesn't taste anything like chocolate. They call it chocolate mint because the stems are, are kind of a chocolatey color. Uh, but that just seems to be the one that just does good everywhere. Uh, but bee balm, again, I mentioned that it's called wild bergamot because it has something in it. I don't, I'm not an herbalist. Something in it that has that velvety-like characteristic. So when we add it to teas, it gets that Earl Grey-like characteristic to it. But it's got wonderful flowers on it. Those flowers attract everything from hummingbirds to wasps and bees. Grows really tall. You almost can't fail when you're growing mints. They like moist, moist uh, soil that is somewhat uh, nutrient uh, heavy. So like well fertilized, moist soil, not wet. They'll grow, but they'll grow in wet too. They prefer moist, well drained. But uh, peppermint specifically on the edges of ponds and stuff like that, it just goes rampant, takes everything over. So mint definitely for teas, uh, for medicinal uses, for culinary use. Mint is something you can use that will always kind of lighten and create cooling effect, that whole menthol thing that's going on. Uh, for instance, one of the great summertime salads that you can make is kind of a Greek cucumber salad with a little bit of mint. So we take cucumber, we thinly slice it, We make a, a like a kind of a yogurt-based tzatziki-style uh, Greek dressing. You can look up how to do that. Thinly sliced red onion and chopped mint. In adult beverages, is awesome. I When I first made a mint mead, I thought, you know, it's going to be kind of like chewing gum mead or something, you know? And it wasn't. It had this, this delicate, light, mint-in-the-background thing going on um, that was really awesome. And a lot, I found that certain, like I did a cucumber mead which sounds gross, tastes fantastic. I did a cucumber mead, and I just used one big sprig of mint in with it, with that cooling in the background. It was amazing. It was almost like kind of like a cucumber salad mead. It was badass without the yogurt flavor. That would not go well in me. But mint does all these awesome things for us. Plus it flowers, and when it does that, it brings in our beneficials and our pollinators. And it's, it's a very strong-smelling herb, and any of your strong-smelling herbs are really good for confusing and or repelling pests. Next, kind of moving into some of the annual uh, herbs that are really great for culinary use, basil. If I could only grow one herb that was a pure culinary herb. I mean, even though all of them do something medicinal, but like you could have one pure culinary herb and one pure medicinal herb. I'd probably grow garlic and basil. And basil, because it's just such a broad profile, and then I would also be able to cheat and say, well, you didn't say what kind of basil. And there's like dozens of varieties of basil. Thai basil, sacred basil, uh, Genovese sweet basil, etc., My favorite basil is the Genovese basil. The, these are the big, green, bright green leaves. And I love that with my garlic, tomatoes and peppers to make bruschetta. It's, and I'll save that for a little bit later. Just fantastic. Um, but I would definitely advise you to grow basil. Distributed containers in your garden, dedicated beds. Basil is just awesome. Next is parsley. Parsley is another one of those herbs. Like It'd be hard for me not to grow parsley. Um, you can get a pound of seed for next to nothing and throw it everywhere, and you'll have wild parsley growing through your whole property. It is fantastic culinarily. It's good fresh. It's good dried. Um, but it also is a preferred plant for certain species of butterflies, like black swallowtails. So right now I have second-year parsley in one of my ebb and flow beds in my greenhouse, and it is covered with the caterpillars and black swallowtail butterflies. Great pollinator, beautiful insect, 
like having it around. By the time my parsley's in its second year, it's a seed crop. They can have all they want. I don't care if they eat it to you know eat it to lose them level the stalks. It's fine. It's for them. That's why it's there in its second year. I'm going to get enough seed that it's going to reseed itself, so it has this like keystone in the ecosystem. And no matter where you are in the United States, there's probably a butterfly that would love a big patch of second year parsley to reproduce it. So definitely something worth growing. Uh, time, time. We're back to perennials uh, with you know parsley haven't been like a biannual, but time is a perennial for many of you, and for many of you, it, it needs to be planted every year because it won't survive your winters. Just an incredible culinary herb, and basil and thyme together as dried herbs, and rosemary and thyme. Both of those combinations are fantastic culinary use, and thyme is very easy to grow. It literally grows like a weed. And next up, rosemary. Rosemary I've mentioned before, but it's an evergreen shrub. Most of the country, it is a perennial. Some places you either need it in a container or whatever, but um, rosemary I really like to grow, because, and it's crazy, But it's because it's one of the few herbs that I actually prefer to use dried. About the only way I like to use rosemary green is like if you're doing a, an herb bundle for like brushing a steak. So you take like a sprig of, of rosemary, a couple sprigs of thyme, a sprig of parsley, and a sprig of basil, and you bind them up. And then when you make your steak, you kind of you, you use you kind of heat them up a little bit in some oil, and you use them to apply the oil to the steak, and you herb the steak with an herb oil. Yeah. Otherwise, I really think that most uses for rosemary tends to come out better dried. And the reason I like that as a herb to grow is because it's so easy to dry. Cut some sprigs off and hang them up. When they get really dried out, you just take your hand and they come off the stem into a container, put away. Fantastic plant. All that it needs is enough moisture to not die and not too much to kill it. You find that balance. Again, it likes southwestern corners of houses is for many climates. Now, if you live in central Arizona, maybe that's too harsh, right? you got to find what works where you're at. Uh, next up, sorrel. Sorrel, whether it be regular sorrel, sheep sorrel, blood vein sorrel, I don't care what it is, just a fantastic pot herb. Uh, really, really bulletproof. It's basically a dock. So it's a deep taproot. It's a weed. It survives anywhere. But there's some really improved varieties of it that have better culinary uses. So definitely look at sorrel. Oregano. Oregano is another one of what I call the four horsemen of herbs. You know, basil, thyme, rosemary, and oregano. Those are like, if you have that in your pantry with some salt and pepper, you can pretty much, and, and some garlic, you can own the world with the culinary capabilities there. Um, absolutely recommend oregano and you'll find that in most of the south it's perennial it comes back every year on its own here in fact it takes an awful lot to even freeze it to the ground here and what we generally do when we have oregano that's doing well in a place we just heap a bunch of mulch on top of it once we get into the deep winter and by spring the kind of mulch has kind of gone away and it's back and going again but you know oregano what more do I need to say you can't, you, you, you can't make Italian food without oregano in it a goji berry I recommend because it's such superfood and because the leaves themselves can be used to make tea and the teas the leaves of goji berry and blackberry as well you can do this with can actually be fermented into a black tea substitute So I'm not going to get into how you do that today, but just know that that's possible. And then goji berry I like because it's very easy to store the berries. Pick them, throw them in a dehydrator, and dehydrate them. They'll dehydrate better for you if you take something like a toothpick or a pin and give them one little prick so that they have a little bit of a way to get rid of their moisture a little bit easier. 
but I actually would tell you that I don't like fresh goji berries and I love them dried. It's a weird thing. When you eat them fresh, they're not real sweet and they kind of have a weird thing going on. But when you dry them, they get really, really sweet. They have a lot of nutritional benefits and they actually are really good in teas as well. Uh, my favorite way to use goji berry is you take some dried goji berry, you put it in a cup, like a teacup, pour boiling hot water over it, let them steep, and let it cool down to where you can drink it without blazing your tongue off. Drink that as a tea, and then eat the berries at the end. You'll thank me after you do it. Dill, I've already talked about, but dill has just so many uses. I, I have a hard time making any kind of a fish without using dill. Um, one of my favorite things to eat in, the, in the, the spring around here when everything's blowing up, I'll go out and take a big old nasturtium leaf, and I'll put a couple bits of um, red amaranth in that, a little bit of celery leaf, um, some dill, and some garlic chives, and I'll roll that up like a little vegetable taco. It's just, just fantastic, and that dill just sets everything off. If you like snails, and I do, I like snails in white wine sauce, a little bit of dill hit on that at the end, little garlic and butter, saute your snails, they're done, get them out, hit them with a little dill, salt, and pepper, fantastic. And the last one is sage. Sage is an herb that it's, it's a shame we don't use more in the United States. It brings so much flavor to the party. Uh, almost all of my sausage recipes include some sage. Uh, I use sage extensively when I, when I like cook chicken or turkey roasted in the oven, uh, whether they're spatchcocked out to whether they're flat or a whole roasted bird. Uh, fantastic. Rubbed onto, in, and under the skin. Um, sage, of course, can be used to make you know, smudge, uh, sage smudges as well. Uh, it's, it's medicinal, and it's one of those herbs that I think actually can be mood elevating just because it smells good. So it's one of those things that I think you, you can walk by a sage bush and you reach out and pick a leaf or two off it and you just kind of rub it through your hands as though you're washing your hands under a faucet and really rub it on your hands. And then you can just drop the leaves and just smell your hands. And it, 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 I don't mean in some kind of drug way. I just mean that you feel better. Like it is so grounding and so centering that it has that going for it as well. So, and it's also bulletproof. It's a desert plant. Right? So as long as we don't overwater it or completely get ridiculous on how dry it is, sage is going to live. Very few pests bother sage. Um, let me give you a few examples on using this stuff. I kind of peppered them in so that we could go quick here toward the end of today's show. But using herbs fresh. One of my favorite uses for fresh herbs is something called bruschetta or bruschetta. And I did a meme recently that I put out on MeWe that said, no matter how you pronounce it, you do not cook the tomatoes when you make bruschetta. Um, I don't know where that's come from. Whenever I really like something, I look for other people's recipes to see how they do it. And most of the recipes I find online for bruschetta, bruschetta, and you call it however you want, um, involve seeding, peeling, and or cooking tomatoes. I don't do any of that shit. Here's how I make bruschetta, and I, I invite you to try it and for yourself. And there is some secrets in this. There's some things that I picked up from an Italian guy named Joseph Carini that ran a, uh, or Joseph Caramia that ran a restaurant called Carini's in a small town in Pennsylvania. This, I mean, this is a guy, his, his parents lived in an attic over the restaurant, and they did not speak English. Knows a little bit about bruschetta, man. Um, the first thing I do when I make bruschetta is to take the tomatoes and I either hand dice them into small bite-sized pieces 
or what I've been doing a lot lately, I have a miniature food processor, cut them into chunks, throw them in there, and process them. I then put them into a strainer, like a colander, and I hit them with salt. Not a ton of salt, but a decent amount of salt. Give them a mix. Set them in the sink. In fact, put them in the sink immediately, because they're going to start draining immediately. The salt is going to pull a lot of moisture out of them, a lot of excess juice out of them, and it's going to drain. And let them drain for at least 15 minutes. Do your peppers the same way. You can chop your peppers up, throw them in with your tomatoes, a little salt. You can not drain the peppers. They're not as wet. But I usually drain the peppers with some salt as well. That all goes into the bowl that you're going to you know, have your bruschetta in. And then we take basil. And I don't know how much, guys. I do this by sight. But you take those big green basil leaves and you make like a stack of them. Like you're going to make a cigar out of them. And you roll them up like a cigar. And then you cut really thin ribbons out of them. And uh, that goes in. And then garlic cloves. And a lot of garlic. More than you would think. Probably to an average sized bowl. So something that's about as big as a soup bowl. Uh, you're probably looking at four to six good sized cloves of garlic. Chopped up by hand. Or again, my little mini food processor. Uh, boom. In that goes. Olive oil. Kind of do that by sight. Kind of look at it, figure it out. I usually do a little bit of a dried Mediterranean herb mix, Italian herb mix, like Chef Keats Northern Italian. A little pinch of that on top of the fresh basil. Um, then here's the secret. So Garamia, he used to make this stuff. And if he got there too early, he didn't want to serve it to you. It ain't sat long enough is what he'd say. It took me a long time to figure out what he was doing because he wouldn't tell me. But when I would get him to serve it, it had a little bit of a fishy taste to it. And what I realized is he was using, in addition to olive oil, he was using anchovy oil. And because it was with an anchovy oil, it needed a certain amount of time before that fish flavor would do what you wanted it to do, but not actually taste like fish anymore. The way salt brings out flavors without something being salty. So I use, to substitute for that, a very small amount of um, fish sauce. And the brand I use, I only use one, and it's 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 probably the best that you can get in the United States anyway. Um, it's a Vietnamese fish sauce called Red Boat, 40 degrees north, and I'll put a link in the show notes today where you can get it on Amazon. Um, it's the only thing that I use, and you get two bottles for like 23 bucks, and it lasts a long time, and it's not going to go bad. Uh, it's fermented fish, so it's just pretty much got a shelf life of forever. Um, so a little bit of that goes in, and then about a tablespoon of a good quality, high-end balsamic vinegar. I don't want a vinegar flavor in this. The vinegar, again, the vinegar and the fish sauce are an offsetting uh, flavor balance, and so you shouldn't actually really be able, once it sits for a little while, you shouldn't be able to taste either one individually, but it's not the same without it. That goes into the refrigerator, sits for at least an hour, serve it on toasted bread, and use an herb oil or garlic and butter toasted bread to put it on. Fantastic, easy, simple. Um, from a standpoint of dry, Uh, herbs, my favorite thing to do with dry herbs really is for rubs, specifically for meats and or for uh, just using it as whole dry herbs or crumble dry herb for tea. So let me give you an example of one of the really great herbs to use for red meats that you're going to grill is rosemary needles. There are certain, and I, I can't get into the full concept of it, when you do high temperature grilled meats, especially over charcoal and even more so over briquette, There are certain things that taste really good that actually can lead to some cancer-causing components. 
This is not a huge concern unless you're doing it every day, all the time, three times a day. But it is something we want to mitigate. And one of the ways, there's multiple ways we can mitigate this. Marinating is another. But one of the ways we can really mitigate this is whatever rub we're using on that to use the rosemary powder. And I'm not going to go into all the specifics, but uh, there's been enough research done where it's conclusive that this does reduce these, these components, these carcinogenic comp components. So almost every meat rub I make, even if I don't want a lot of rosemary character in it, I add some rosemary uh, needles to, and then I grind them up in the coffee grinder that I use for my herbs. I guess I'll put a link for that in the show notes today as well because it's such a valuable tool. For teas, you know, I, when I first started making teas, I kind of went crazy with it, and I just like threw everything at it. And what I've realized now is that the best way to do a tea is either going to be a single herb or limit it to about four, and one is up to 70% of the total tea. So the other things become components and adjuncts to it. Or you do a straight 50-50 works really well, too, with things that, uh, that complement each other. Uh, one of my favorite teas, as an example of this, is just peppermint and bee balm and a 50-50 mix. Because you get that mintiness, and then you get that soft, velvet-like component. Uh, but another one that's you know, breaking the rules, but it really works good. Even amounts, a third, a third, and a third. Bee balm, lemon balm, peppermint, three mints tea. That's a fantastic tea. So you can give some of those a, a try as well. Salves are probably my preferred way to use herbs medicinally. There are other ways, and I'll talk about how you can learn all about that when we finish up today. But the basics of making a salve is to take an oil, and olive oil is kind of the, the gold standard for this. And don't use your Evo, your extra virgin olive oil, your most expensive. Use your cheap olive oil for this. And warm a pot with a bunch of whatever herb it is in there that you want in you know to, to get the essence of. So comfrey and plantain. So... Um, I would put enough fresh comfrey and plantain into a pot that when I covered it with olive oil, it would look, it, it would be almost full of herb. There's a lot more oil and there's a lot of space in there, but it would be almost full of herb, not compacted, but like if I was going to fill the pot halfway with oil, I'd fill it halfway with loosely packed comfrey and, and plantain. I might even macerate it a little bit and kind of help it come out. And then heat it up. There's a couple ways to do this. One is you take a you get the cheap small crock pots that are like nine bucks. A lot of times you get them for like five dollars at Goodwill. And set them on the lowest temperature and put them in there. And let them sit overnight. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is just you heat them up with uh, a stove burner to about 200 degrees. And you can take a measurement with like a laser thermometer or a canning thermometer or whatever. Or what you really can do is you kind of watch the herbs. And when they start to form bubble, like they're going to begin to fry a little bit, but they don't actually do it, kill the heat, put a lid on the pot, wrap it up in a towel, and set it aside and let it cool. That, that will work as well. Once that's done, strain the oil off, cut some pieces up of beeswax, heat the oil up, and put the beeswax in it. And you heat it up just enough to melt the wax into your, your salve. Let it cool down, and if it's too stiff, add a little more oil. And if it's too runny for what you're looking for, um, add a little more beeswax. When you get the consistency you want, store it however you want to store it, whether it's small jars, cans, whatever, and then use that as a salve. And again, my favorite salve to make is equal parts of comfrey and plantain for scrapes, cuts, abrasions, and then chickweed 
for insect stings, itchy bites, things like that. Uh, but there's tons of other ways you can do Oils, and we just talked about how to do an oil, but how about an oil that is a little bit more of a culinary oil to go with your bruschetta that we made? So here's my thing: if you're going to use an oil, and you're not going to, if you're going to make an oil and you're not going to use it now, like you're going to store it for some length of time, because in the oil you have an oxygen depleted environment. In other words, you don't have oxygen under oil. Because of that, there is a risk of botulism, which is very, very bad. We don't get sick from botulism. We die from it. And the truth is we actually don't. Botulism itself is not toxic. I know some of you are like screaming at me. On, no, hold on. Botulism itself, the organism itself is not toxic. If it was, you'd be dead. It's everywhere in the atmosphere. One of the most common organisms on the planet. It has to be in a very specific oxygen-depleted environment, and it must have water must have no oxygen, and it must have some water. And in that environment, it can reproduce. And when it reproduces, as it reproduces, as a byproduct, it produces botulism toxin, which is actually the organism itself. And again, this can kill you. It's not as common that it happens as people make it out to be or do people dropping over from it left and right. There's just not. But it is a risk. If you're going to make an oil and you want to store it, it should be stored in a refrigerator. And it should use 100% fully dried herbs. No fresh herbs. If you want to do a fresh herb like fresh garlic and fresh basil oil, you can make that. Use it. If you don't use it all, get rid of it. You can heat it up really uh, to a high enough temperature that you, you kind of drive all the moisture off. There's still a potential for a problem. And then you fried it and you ruined it anyway. Okay, So I like to make oils that are going to be around for a couple weeks or more with dried herbs. My favorite one to make is a garlic, uh, garlic herb oil for lots of things, but specifically for the bruschetta recipe I gave you. So to do this, you take about a pint jelly jar, rinse it out with good hot water, and dry it. We want no water in it. Okay, Then we're going to add a big pinch of dried garlic and a big pinch of whatever Italian-type herbs you want. Thyme, rosemary, oregano, basil. That's the four that I like to do this with. Dried. 100% fully dried. Okay, We're going to put that in there. Then we're going to heat the oil to about 200 degrees at least. It can go up to 250, 275 if you want. 275 is high enough that it would kill any botulism organisms it came into contact with. And then we're going to pour it into the jar over top of the herbs. Put a lid on it. Give it a shake, holding onto it with a pot holder or a towel or something, because now it's pretty hot. And let it cool down until it acts like it. It's, it's going to be kind of like you're canning. You're not canning. Don't treat it like you've canned. But you know what I mean. That little center cap inside the ring is going to get sucked down. And when you open it, it's going to go poop. Take that. Throw it in the refrigerator. Uh, let it sit till it's cool. And it will be beautifully infused with those herbs and garlic. And then for your bruschetta, slice your bread like a baguette's perfect on a bias, so it's on that angle. Look it up if you don't know what sliced on the bias means. Uh, you know, about a half inch thick. Take a brush and brush that oil on it. Throw it on the grill, oil side down, until it's lightly toasted. Put your bruschetta on top of it. And you can make any type of oil you want that way. Store the oil in the refrigerator and only use dry herbs, and you will not have any risk of botulism. 
You want to make it with fresh? Make it, use it within a day or two. Okay? Anything beyond that, you're risking potential botulism. Just, it is. Uh, next, I want to talk a little bit about ferments, uh, specifically lacto-fermentation, because I gave you some meat ideas already. But one of my favorite things to do, at certain times of the year around here, when garlic is really plentiful, they'll sell a whole clamshell of peeled garlic cloves at the grocery store for like $4. Like, you can't buy the garlic and peel it yourself for the price they do this. And I just take those and I throw them in a jar and I do a, a salt brine on them and I lacto-ferment those things. And oh my God, is that fantastic. That's, that is excellent. If you grow a lot of garlic, you get to the point where it starts to produce seed, it'll make these things called scapes. And you can look up what those are if you're not sure what I mean. And you cut the garlic scapes off the top of the plant and you lacto-ferment those and the flavor out of that is absolutely unreal. It's so amazing. And the reality with lacto-fermentation is you can ferment almost anything. And any herb you can come up with will probably do decent in a ferment, and we're not going to deal with concerns about botulism in a proper ferment. So a book I really recommend is um, uh, Wild Fermentation is, is one that I, I, I think is like the, kind of the gold standard by Sandor Katz. But probably a lot more of an approachable book with more recipes and, and just easier to understand uh, is a book called Fermented Vegetables by Christopher and Kristen Shockey. And, and that is one of, that's probably the book that I would recommend that goes on your shelf for doing fermented vegetables. And so I will put a link to that book in the show notes for you today. And again, I cannot recommend it highly enough. And then the last thing that we can do with herbs is more of the tinctures, the infusions, etc. And, you know, a tincture is made with alcohol. An infusion is really a really strong tea that we might use uh, topically instead of ingesting. Or we might actually even bathe in an infusion uh, for certain reasons. It's too much to get into today. We're already an hour and 15 minutes into the show. So what I'll say about that is there's a book that I've had out a bunch of times as well for T-SPAS called The Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook. Um, that is the book on herbal medicine. And it's not like what you would think. It's not like this giant textbook that you have to be a poindexter to get through and you know, you're going to constantly use as like you'll never really learn anything. So all it is is this crutch that you depend on. It will be a reference that you will refer back to to make sure you're right. But that book, coupled with today's knowledge of basic herbs, there's almost nothing you can't do at home that you, unless you shouldn't be doing it anyway. Okay, like if you're going to go out and figure out that digitalis comes from foxglove and you have heart disease and you're going to treat your heart disease with foxglove, like you shouldn't be doing, you see what I'm saying? Like you should not be doing that anyway. Don't do that. Uh, digitalis is used for congestive heart failure and they used to use foxglove for it. And actually you can make a case in some ways that under the proper medical supervision, the foxglove is safer than a digitalis. Because as you increase the dose to find the right dose, people start puking up and retching their guts out, and then you back it off and they don't die. But with the prescription digitalis, this is one of these things about herbs not being safe. The prescription digitalis, basically no one's ever seen the second symptoms, the middle symptoms. The, middle sim the first symptoms is very mild and it may or may not be the drug, The middle symptom is like vomiting, and the third symptom, the third level is death. 
<laughs> and so I remember reading one of Andrew Wiles' books one time, and he talked about how when he was going through his internship uh, to become a doctor in the hospital, and they were discussing some of these things, none of the doctors, he asked, like, has anybody ever seen a patient throw up from digitalis? And no one had. So then he's like, well, has anybody ever seen anybody overdose and die? And like, yeah, like everybody had seen at least once in their career. He couldn't figure out why that was even listed as a side effect. He found this old-ass doctor, you know, some guy that's still tooling around at like 80 in the hospital, that remembered when they used the whole herb, and he said, yeah, that's, that's why. When we used the whole herb, no one ever died because you saw that symptom and you backed off. But you, you at your house should not be doing that. And that's what I'm saying. With this book, until you go to that level of doing things that can truly be dangerous, there's nothing you should be doing at home without advanced training that you can't do without that book. And if you take the whole series of this and you add to it those two books, you really, you know, the one on fermentation for storage and, and quality and, and health improvement and all, all the wonderful things that fermented vegetables do, and then the knowledge of how to use herbs along with today's information. You have so much that you can do from your backyard with a garden and some herbs and two books. And there's so much we didn't even talk about today, like cleansing qualities of herbs, tonifying qualities of herbs, etc. I've done an entire series on just herbs. But what I really want you to kind of get from this is what we're trying to do here is reconnect. Think about this. Humans and herbs have shared thousands of years of history. For thousands of years, people's first choice when something went wrong was the plants that they knew that were around them. And in general, people didn't die from them because if people started dying from shit, they stopped using it. It's kind of a harsh way to learn, but it's, it's, it's the truth. It's reality. When people act like people were just dropping over left and right uh, before modern medicine, it's just disingenuous. It's not true. We have too many examples of two people living way too long for that to be the case. And so we've had this incredible history with Earth, but what we've really had as humans is an incredible history with our planet. As a native organism on this planet. This is what we've lost. We think of we're here and wilderness and nature are over there. That if man is there, it's not nature. We, we didn't get, I don't care what conspiracy theory you, you buy into, we weren't dropped off by aliens here. We are a native species to this planet. And to truly be what we're supposed to be, we should be interacting with it, with herbs, with plants, with insects. The people that live the longest in the world... You know, they say, well, it's this part of uh, Taiwan or this southern Japan or whatever. There, there's very long-lived communities in almost every part of the world. And this is what they all have in common. The people that live the longest stay where they are most of the time. They travel very little. They get bit by the bugs that are there. They get the dirt under their fingernails that's endemic to where they are. They develop resistance to things based on where they live. And they are part of the ecosystem in which they exist. Which makes perfect sense because that's what we're supposed to do. So the more close we're living to the natural state that we belong in, the better we're going to do as an organism as we've evolved to do. Homesteading is taking a piece of that and bringing it back into your life. Where we walk out the door and we are surrounded by our food, our fibers, our medicine, our means of existence, which can include income. 
the animals that provide for us and that we provide for. That's what homesteading really is. That's what this series is about. I hope you enjoyed today's uh, part on herbs. Uh, we'll be talking about a lot more. If you guys have any input for this series, let me know. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. TSPC in the subject line will make sure that I read your email eventually. With that, we have wrapped up another episode. You know, I mentioned a couple of things that will be in the show notes today. Uh, the couple books, the uh, Red Boat um, Fish Sauce, which I really need to do a standalone review on that. But those all come, of course, from a page on the site that you can find by going to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. If you go there, you can find all of the stuff that I have reviewed on Amazon. And it doesn't matter what you buy. As long as you go there first, you help survival podcasts and the work that we do. The item I have for you today, I brought around... Um, not very long ago. In fact, I don't think it was a full month ago. I brought it around on, uh, well, it's more than a month. It's 610, so June 10th, 2019, so a month and a couple weeks ago. Uh, it is the Thermocell MR150 Mosquito Repeller. And all of the stuff that Thermocell makes uses the same stuff as far as the fuel cartridge and the repellent mats. This is why I'm bringing it around today. One, I talked an awful lot about working out in the garden today, didn't I? The one thing I hate when I work outside is getting bit by mosquitoes. Not only do they transmit diseases, but they itch. And while we can make all kinds of herbal remedies for them, I'd rather just not get bit. This thing works. But the reason I brought it back around is when I brought it around the first time, I said, I know it works on mosquitoes. It's supposed to work on biting flies and sand fleas or sand flies as well. And I don't know if it does, but I'm going to take it with me to Florida. And I wanted to take it so badly that since you can't transport butane on an airplane anymore, I ordered a refill package delivered to my hotel in, in Florida, and I brought just the unit itself. And I have to say, wherever we used it, we did not get bit by a single sand fly, sand flea, whatever you want to call them. It worked perfectly on them. I still cannot tell you if these things work really good on biting flies, like horse flies or yellow flies. I just don't have them around here. And the only reason I'm skeptical of that claim, considering it works so good on everything else is that it does not seem to do anything to repel house flies. And to me, a deer fly or a yellow fly or a black fly or a horse fly seems similar enough that if it would work on one, you would think it would work on the other. I, I, and I don't know. You know, If any of you guys have you know, used it where you have biting flies, let me know. But the sand fleas and the mosquitoes, this stuff is dynamite on. I believe in full disclosure. Uh, today, a gal named Valerie, who I've known for 30 years almost, um, from whenever I first moved to Texas, since 1993 I've known her, um, said they used one of these and they took it camping and they were walking around with it and they still felt like they got bit by mosquitoes. Now, the place she said she was sounded like a damn swamp where it might have just been sheer quantity or maybe the way they were walking around with it, how they were using it. I don't know. But I've hung mine from my belt when I'm working out here in my, my gardens and all, and I don't get bit at all. And certainly, like, setting it down on the table when we have a group out on the patio, it's, it's been 100% effective. If you have mosquito issues, I really recommend that you consider this. And again, while I'm recommending the portable 150 model that's really good for, like, hunting and backpacking and stuff like that or camping, uh, they have, like, like, little pretty ones that look like lanterns and stuff like that. They all use the same stuff. 
So it does work. I really recommend it. And again, whether you pick that up or not, just know. You go to T-SPAS. I own it. I spent my money on it. I would do it again or I won't recommend it. And no matter what you buy, whether it's something listed there or anything on Amazon, you help support us and the work that we do. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up today. I have for you Song of the Day today. This is Number Song Week. And so all these songs are titled on a number. And uh, John gave me a list of them and said, just pick five of like the seven he gave me. I might even go outside of his recommendation. But this one is one for me. I'd never heard this song before, though I really dig the band uh, that, that did this song. It's called The Fray. Uh, the thing they're most famous for is probably that song, How to Save a Life. Um, but this is called 1961. Now, what happened in 1961? The Berlin Wall was built. And that's really what this song is about, is this city being divided between communism and the West. City being split in half. Brother being split from brother. And and how awful that is. But it also symbolizes a lot of the walls that we build in our lives. When I first listened to the song, before I looked at the song facts component behind it, because it's on songfacts.com, um, I thought maybe it was about racism, especially in 1961. Two brothers walking hand in hand down the street, right? So I think there can be that wall. But there can be walls that are very personal in individuals, like uh, the, the, the unreasonable refusal to forgive someone in our lives would be an example. But all of those walls have the potential to come crumbling down, just like the Berlin Wall did in the 80s. And you'll hear that in this song as well. With that, it's been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.